I have gray hair. Mickey Bowden has gray hair. Brian Miller has gray hair. We all worked at ECS. I don't know if there's a correlation there or not, but that's just the way it goes, right, Mr. Bowden? That's right. Uh, can I can I acknowledge uh, one person really quick? And I didn't know he was going to be here. He's going to hate me for this. Uh, let me get this going here. My elementary school principal is here, David Fox. Where is Mr. Fox? Mr. Fox, I love you. My mom passed away when I was 10 years old, and he was my principal. And it means a lot. Here's my crew. Uh, this is a picture. Uh, if, you, if you don't know this, Memphis is a football school. Uh, we, we occasionally play basketball. That's right. Uh, so I got to spend eight years in college football, and that was a, a lot of fun. But this is a picture of the Cotton Bowl this year. In case you were wondering, we played in the Cotton Bowl. That was kind of a big deal. Uh, the rock stars in the middle. Uh, that's my wife, Carrie. She is, uh, I far out kicked my coverage. Those of you that know her, you can say amen now, and I agree with that. Uh, Preston, uh, in the somewhat attempt to be cool, chain, and hairdo, uh, is a, uh, he's a football player at Memphis. He has a very unique skill. Uh, you want to talk about discipleship? I actually work at ECS. Uh, there's a pretty good snapper that snaps for the Ravens. His name is Morgan Cox. Morgan Cox taught Preston Brady how to snap. Preston Brady is now the snapper at the University of Memphis, and the holder, he snaps for punts. And then we've got another snapper that snaps to him, and he uh, holds for field goals. There is an award for the best holder if, in college football, if you can believe that. And that is actually my son, so I'm going to brag on that. He's the holder of the year this year. That was fun. So then comes the actually the best long snapper in the family is actually the one with the Memphis sweatshirt on. That is my 16-year-old son, uh, Bennett. Uh, coach Trey Adams is our football coach. Uh, Trey's taking him under his wing, but Morgan actually taught Bennett how to snap. So it's a really cool connection for us. And then the smartest person of all of us, self-acknowledged, is Emma Sanders. She's 12 going on 30. And so we're really excited uh, to have her take care of us at the end of our lives because Preston and Bennett are unable to do that. So, but we're going to talk. I, I want to share a story and then share my story. Uh, I've been in college athletics for eight years, but when I was a student at the University of Memphis, uh, I, I witnessed what I believe is the greatest academic accomplishment by any athlete in the history of sports. Math was not my strong suit. As you know, in big college universities, uh, your intro-level math classes are in massive auditoriums. I go in the first day. There's 250 of us in the class. Uh, there's a, a row of athletes sitting behind us. The professor walks in and says the worst thing that she could possibly say. You will have one test. It will be the final exam. That will be your only grade good luck and she walked out now class number two the herd had thinned a little bit about 20 of us were left in class and so we decided I decided to make sure that I was in class because I was not a very good math student so I worked really really hard and took really really good notes well about midway through the semester she said you need to spread the word to everybody that's not here you can have one sheet of paper on the final exam. You can have anything you want on that sheet of paper, bring it to you with the exam, and you can have it. I was like, oh, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. 
So I start writing every single formula that I could possibly even think of. You would have needed a, a telescope from NASA to read my writing, but I was going to be prepared. Exam time comes. Sitting right behind me is a, uh, I, will, I won't name his name, because uh, some of you might know him, but a, an offensive lineman, with, by, we'll go by Reggie, we'll just call him Reggie for today's story. But we all sit down and we get ready. Teacher passes out the test. It's Scantron. For those of you younger guys in the room, that's a, that was a little form that you fill out with little bubbles. Some of you might know that. Some of you probably have no idea what I just said. Don't worry about it. It's just part of the test. So the teacher passes it out. Reggie is nowhere to be found. His seat is, is open. We get the test. We start. I feel really good about myself I've got all my formulas ready I'm, I'm feeling pretty good I'm about 10 15 questions in 15 minutes into the exam no sign of Reggie all of a sudden the back door to the auditorium flies open in comes Reggie all 300 pounds of him he doesn't even have a pencil he has to borrow a pencil from the girl sitting next to him he does in fact have a scantron but he's just sitting there for the next half hour he just sits there he doesn't do one problem not one we're like, what is going on? Everybody's kind of looking. He's just sitting back, just kind of hands over his large tummy and just sitting there. An hour into the exam, the back doors of the auditorium fly open again. In walks somebody that whatever you picture as nerd, whatever you picture that to be, that's this guy. Younger guys in the room, i to make another analogy. He had a pocket protector in. Okay, that was something you put in the shirt to protect your pins from leaking onto your shirt, okay? I'm trying to teach you some things, young guys. Boy Scouts in the back, you need to understand that. This guy walks in and walks down, and all of a sudden you hear a loud popping noise. Reggie gets a single sheet of paper out, pops it out, puts it down on the ground, and what we came to find out was the graduate assistant from the math department proceeded to stand on Reggie's paper and give him every answer to the test. The professor said, what are you doing? Reggie's response, you said I could have whatever I wanted on my sheet of paper. He's on my sheet of paper. <laughs> True story. Needless to say, I was going through a range of emotions. One, anger. Two, this guy's pretty brilliant. Three, why didn't I think of that? And four, I wanted to get to know Reggie because he did something different that nobody else was willing to do. And I got to know him after that, all because he was willing to do something differently than everybody else was willing to do. I was saved in high school but I didn't know what it meant to follow Jesus until I was about 30. And God put a man in my life by the name of David Montague. David is the, is the executive director of the Memphis Teacher Residency. If you don't know David, you need to know David. David sat me down at Lenny's on Highland. I will not eat lunch with any of you at Lenny's on Highland. It's a sacred place because of what I'm about to tell you. David loved me enough and was willing enough to share the gospel with me about what my life looked like. He put two Lenny's napkins, he flipped them over, I still have them, 
in my desk, and the first napkin looked like this. And he said, Braxton, this is what your life looks like. You just think you understand what it means, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is just part of your life, just like your spouse, just like your family, just like your kids, just like your job. It's just part. And he said, I love you enough to tell you that this is what your life should look like. I'm a simple guy. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And at that moment in time, God changed my life. I left, and I started thinking about everything. What does it look like for the gospel of Jesus Christ to guide my parenting, to guide my marriage, to guide how I go to work every day? And so I started thinking about all of these things. And at that point in time, we had Preston... Uh, we were 25 and 22 when Preston was born. We had zero, we're just lucky Preston's still alive. Let's just be honest. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing. And so all of these things were going through my mind. And I was working at a school, impacting, hopefully, you know, God using me to impact young men. And then the Lord worked where I was able to, to work with boys that shave because that's all I call them, Memphis football players. That's all they are. They're just boys that shave. That's all they really are. There's really no difference in the boys in the elementary school that I was working in or driving across the street, across Central to the university. There's really no difference. They're just a little older and a little hairier, depending on, how, depending on whether the 12-year-old's going through puberty. Or, that's, that's another point. But at that moment in time, I started asking men, what are you doing with your kids? It was as if this was the, the one thing. I was like, what are you doing? So I, I figured out I was going to ask the 20 men that I thought were really living a gospel-centered life, what's your plan to disciple this next generation? I got crickets. It was the scariest and most exciting moment of my life. It was scary in the fact that nobody had a plan. But it was exciting because I felt like that's what God was laying on my heart. And for the next 15 years that has been what I'm most passionate about is discipling this next generation it's what wakes me up they put me to bed that's for sure because I'm tired along with a lot of people in here that work at ECS with me day in and day out but it is my ultimate passion and if you say my kids are gone they're out of the house amen to that I'm ready for that moment I have that moment all the time, but there is a generation of young men that need you right now. I can tell you about 105 of them right now. I just showed you one of them, but there's 104 of his closest buddies that need you right now. There's young men all over the city that need you right now, so don't check out on me. What I want to share with you tonight is just kind of what I've learned. You know, Britton said he sought my advice. That's easy advice because all I do is tell you how I've screwed it up. It's the easiest thing I can do. But it's what I'm most passionate about. So on this journey, I start reading, and I get to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Britton's going to laugh at me in just a second because he's, he's probably my closest friend in life, and I made fun of him for wearing glasses for quite some time, and then the Lord just decided like the next day that I needed glasses. Laugh now, Britton. That's fine. I don't care. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Remember this order now, okay? These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Notice the order. You don't say it first. You love first. You have, to, you have to be willing to make the commitment first. But then, if you read that verse, is there a cookie-cutter approach to this? There's not. What does it say? It just basically says it's 24-7. That's really what it is. That the gospel should come out of us 24-7. It should be a part of us 24-7. If anybody tells you there's a cookie-cutter approach to teach boys what it means to be men or girls what it means to be women, you need to run and you need to run fast. Because I thought I had a plan until my 21-year-old, we figured out that he was dyslexic. Do you think he wants to read this book? No. He wants to throw it back at you. And it's not because he wants to throw it back at you because it's the Bible. He wants to throw it back because he has to read it. So God pretty much just slapped me in the face and said, hey, no, no, no. Your plan, that's, that's, it's, this is my plan. It's 24-7. It's when you drive in the car. It's when you put them in the bed. It's when you wake up in the morning. It's 24-7. It's hard. That's why we all have gray hair. And then, as I'm reading through Scripture through all this time, I get to Judges chapter 2. I know you've all got Judges chapter 2 memorized. But it's right after the death of Joshua. And this is how this generation, and this is to me one of the scariest verses in the Bible. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. Think about that. There was no social media. How did word get spread? Literally, word got spread. And yet there was an entire generation who did not know who God was or what he had done. And let me just tell you, I work with them day in and day out in all different areas of this city. And we have a city and we have a generation that do not know who God is and do not know what he's done on their behalf. And it is our role to make sure that 24-7 it is coming out of our mouth, but more importantly, it's modeled in our lives. So I want to quickly share just five things that I think if we did this as men, we just put forth the effort doing these five things, I think our city would change. I think this next generation would change. The first is this. We have to cast vision. How many of you in here by show of hands, your father taught you a definition of manhood? That's what I thought. A minority, right? If I were to ask the dads in the room, what is your definition of godly manhood, what would you tell me? Because let me tell you what's going to happen. Either you're going to define it for your children or they're going to get it defined by our culture. Which one do you want? We have to do that. In any disciple-making relationship, it doesn't have to be this next generation. In any disciple-making relationship, you should have a clear definition 
of what it means to be a godly man and how that fleshes out day in and day out. We should all have that in our back pocket. A real man glorifies God by seeking an adventuresome life of purpose and passion as he protects and serves others. If you want it, I'll send it to you. That's the one that I, I use for my boys. So when I use for a generation of boys around this town, if you want it, I'll be happy to give it to you. But if you don't, how do we ex- what, what are we expecting them to grow into? Where's the target? Instead, we just kind of fly by the seat of our pants. And we fall to the idol of busyness instead of focusing on intentionality. Now, here's what I'm also going to tell you. Don't cast vision for something you're not willing to model yourself. They will see right through you. We have to have a clear definition of what it means to be a godly man, and more importantly, how that fleshes out. The second thing we have to do is we have to learn to communicate truth. We live in a world today where truth is a relative term. It's very blurred. But where we miss the boat is I don't think we know this generation well enough. We're teaching way up here to a generation that's way down here. We are in a biblically illiterate culture. I can prove it real quickly. Even in Christian families, we have biblically illiterate kids. But what we need to do and what our kids need is applying biblical truth to everyday life. Don't teach theology without any application. They will throw it out the window. But you have to have both. But we've got to communicate truth. Now, here's the problem with men is we have not been very creative. We've lost the art of story. Can you imagine the dinner table conversation between Abraham and Isaac? Hey, Dad, you remember that time that you, uh, you tied me up? Yes, son, I, I remember. You remember that time where you held the knife over me? Yeah, yeah, son, I, I, was, I was there. Dad, you remember, you remember that God provided a substitute? You remember what happened there? And I can just, I, I know that I'm taking it out of context here, but like I can just see them high-fiving at a table, whatever that version of a table looked like at that point in time, and be excited about that. When's the last time we really got excited about teaching Scripture to this next generation? Because let me tell you what they see. They see boring, and they run. When's the last time you were really excited about opening up this book and teaching it? I know one guy that gets passionate about teaching this word every time, and that's Ronnie Stevens. You can say a lot of things about him. One thing I know about him is he's passionate about teaching God's word. I wish we were as passionate about teaching God's word as we were about whether Memphis is making the Cotton Bowl or not. Because I was pretty passionate about Memphis making the Cotton Bowl. And I was pretty passionate about my own kid playing in there. I wish every single day I was that passionate about teaching this book. And I'm convicted of that daily. But we've lost the art of story. We've also lost the art of asking intentional questions. The best thing you can learn to do is ask questions to this generation in a way that elicits a response. Don't ask a boy, how was your day? What are you going to get? Fine, good, bad. 
the best thing that we ever did for Preston Brady, and if Preston was here, most of, a lot of you that know him, he is a talker. I fully believe he is a talker because of one parenting tip that we got. Somebody told me when they were very little, don't allow them to have one-word answers. Now, what did that cause me to do? I have to frame my questions in a way to force him to answer. What was the best part of your day? Why? And now I have a 12-year-old daughter. So instead of one-word answers, it's 100 words or less. You've cut, that's your limit, Emma Sanders, we're done. But we've lost that. And here's what we've gotten. We have a generation of young men who can't talk to adults. And you know whose fault that is? It's our fault. Because we've put them in front of one of these instead of talking to them. They will talk, I promise you. I, I can see a couple of them. I, Noah's back there. Noah will talk to me all day long. He's been raised right. Nathan will talk to me all day long. He needs a haircut, but he'll talk to me all day long. Actually, I'm letting him grow it out. I promise. It's a beautiful thing. But they've been forced to talk. And when they're forced to talk, it becomes normal. And then you can have normal gospel-centered conversations instead of trying to throw some awkward conversation in when you hadn't built up that idea of, hey, it's comfortable to have these conversations. If you're a parent in the room, you want your kids to screw up under your house, in your house. You want to pray for that. You want to pray for them to get caught so that you can have a gospel-centered conversation. And those of you that are in a disciple-making relationship with anybody in a younger generation or just any generation, men in general have problems talking. We have to do a better job, and we've got to make sure that we communicate truth. Next, this one's pretty easy. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your interests, but to the interests of others. Key verse, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We have to be champions of service. We live in a generation that's look out for number one and don't step in number two. They look out for themselves, but they don't want to get their hands and feet messy. Gospel-centered living is messy. It is messy. It will continue to be messy. But if we're not willing to model getting in the mess, then we're going to raise a generation that is wrapped up in a bubble that won't even get anywhere near it. And that is a recipe for disaster because confused men create major problems. Are you willing to champion service? How well do you know your city? Think of the generational impact that if you decided with somebody in your disciple-making relationship or your son or grandson, just think of the generational impact that you could have if you just picked one ministry and served there. We would literally have a generation moving back into our city just to serve at streets, just to serve at SOS, just to serve, I can name a hundred of them. Think about that. Think about the generational impact that could have on our city, the gospel-centered impact that that could have on our city. 
But once again, we fall to the idol of busyness. And we don't make time. No opportunities equals selfish, self-centered kids. A selfish, self-centered generation. And that's the last thing we want. We have to lay down our rights because Christ laid down our rights on our behalf, his rights on our behalf. The next is you just got to be committed to it. You've got to be committed to discipleship. It is a process. One of my favorite analogies, I met a lot of a lot of cool people working for the University of Memphis. I mean a lot of cool people. One of the coolest guys that I ever met was a quarterback coach that trained, uh, he trains NFL, college quarterbacks going to the NFL. And one of the best things that he showed me and taught me was what he does right before they start meeting all these NFL coaches. Because what the NFL coaches want to know is do you have it up here? And so he used Cam, Cam Newton was one of his prime examples. He'd take him in a room with a whiteboard and he'd draw up NFL defenses. And he'd give him every bit. And he said, you got this? And Cam would say, yes, got it. You sure? Yes, got it. He'd hand him the whiteboard marker and send him into the next room. And the next room was full of 30 to 40-year-old female moms. And he said, you sure you know this? Well, you're about to teach it to them. And he would have literally have to go in on a whiteboard and teach NFL defense to a group of 30 to 40-year-old moms. At some point, you've got to hand the pen over to this generation. At some point in a disciple-making relationship, you have to have, hand that pen over. The question is, those in, under your care, under your watch in those relationships, are they ready? Are you willing to hand that pen over? And can they do it? When they get the pen, what happens? In word and in deed. But we have to be committed to that process. One of the things that I think we've really missed the boat on, this is one of the first things I noticed with University of Memphis football players. They weren't ready for life. Part of the disciple-making process to me is teaching them how to live life. No more pink laundry. Everybody get that? Reds and whites don't go. Right? Managing money. A gospel-centered view of money. A gospel-centered view of relationships. All of these things. Writing a handwritten thank you note. Those kinds of things. I truly believe those are gospel-centered things that should be taught. I love getting handwritten thank you notes. Handwritten notes. If it's printed, I'll read it. But, man, if it's handwritten, I'm tearing that bad boy open. I love them. I got one from a senior at ECS the other day. It made my year. And it didn't even really matter what he wrote. Just the fact that he took the time to handwrite it. But there's a life skill component that we are missing. I think a lot of times we can get this pretty close to right but they have no idea how to live. And then we send them off into the world and they have no clue what to do. And part of that discipleship process is biblical truth to everyday life 
And what does everyday life look like? What's a gospel-centered view of those things look like? Most of the football players that I ever dealt with had zero clue about relationships. Zero. And when you get down into their heart, you find out nobody had ever taught them. It just wasn't their fault. It just wasn't their fault. They're hungering for what it looks like to have a gospel-centered relationship because they don't know any better. But we have to be committed to that process. And that's a messy process. It's an ugly process. But, man, when you look at it and see it, man, God is just God is so good. I could point to about 20 different people in this room right now that God has used in my life. Literally, I could go around the room. From Coach Self who taught me, Coach Lyles taught me, Coach Self taught my, not to date you, Coach Self, but uh, taught my dad or coached my dad. I mean, Coach Lyles taught me. I mean, we've got groups of guys back here. Mr. Fox, I've already talked about him. Trey Adams is one of my best friends. I mean, Rex Jones has impacted my life. I can go, I just start going around the room. David Butler, Robert Jones become really good friends of mine, just gospel-centered guys that God has put in my life. But that process is messy. But we have to be committed to it. And then last but not least, it's my favorite part. As part of this this next generation, please do not let this next generation equate gospel-centered living with being boring. Please don't do that. Because it's not. All of you have got stories. I mean, God moved us into the inner city of Memphis for 10 years. I can promise you, it was a lot of things. It wasn't boring. I can promise you. I, I, I have my dream job right now. I, I'm, not, I'm not advertising, but I'm just telling you, like literally, I have my dream job. I hope I never work anywhere else again. It's the best thing that God could ever I feel like the best thing that God could ever have given me was the job that I have right now. I love it more than anything in the world. I feel like I'm so I, I'm just so clearly called to it and equipped, but I'm going to tell you, it's not boring. I can tell you that. It is not boring. And I have yet to meet somebody that is living out the gospel or seeking to live out the gospel. I, I hadn't seen many boring people when it comes to that. Don't let this next generation equate that. Have some fun. Tape, go home. If you have young kids, go home, duct tape the spray nozzle on your sink and ask your son or daughter to get you water. Please do that. Scare your children. It's healthy. It's healthy. Have some fun. Because listen, what do we want them to grow up to be? My father was one of the greatest to this day. I love him to death. He, he's a boring human being. I didn't want to grow up. Not, he's the, the most fit person I've ever met. He uh, could still beat me up it, it very easily with one hand tied behind his back and maybe one leg. But uh, it says more about me than about him. But I, I have more respect for that man, but it wasn't what I wanted to grow up to be. Now I look at David Montague, who discipled me. Man, his life is anything but boring. And it's not all about that, but man, that's the version of manhood that I wanted to be. That's what I was seeking to be. There has to be that Reggie factor to it, that there has to be something different, and that difference is the gospel. 
That is the only difference. That Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again for you and me. Period. End of sentence. And all of life is a response to that. And that is not boring. There is nothing boring about that. Don't let this generation think it is because that's what they think it is. In today's culture, they see us in a lot of different ways, but one of it is boring. Don't let that happen. Be simple. Be spontaneous. And spend your money on things that matter. Don't worry about birthday parties. Take them somewhere and have gospel-centered conversations. They'll remember that. They won't remember their 10-year-old birthday party. Take them to a Duke basketball game and have fun and have a gospel center. Take them to an amusement park. Scare them to death and talk about the ups and downs of life. I can give you 150 ideas, but don't be boring. there's, There's no possible way that you can read through the gospels and see the disciples following Jesus. I don't see that as boring. I I don't read it as boring. Don't do that. Don't let this generation equate gospel-centered living with being boring. So uh, this is the Cotton Bowl. Uh, This is uh, God, uh, despite my sinfulness and brokenness, using my son. Uh, Somebody sent me this picture. Uh, When you think it's going bad and when you think, oh, man, he's making poor decisions, you get this. Uh, This is is Preston leading prayer at the start of uh, every game. Really cool. Really, really cool. Uh, I I love the fact that it's a bunch of different guys from a bunch of different neighborhoods. Just all sitting there with all one thing in common. They're willing to take a stand in front of whatever, 60,000 people and say, this is important to us. And it wasn't because of his father. It was because his heavenly father moved in his heart and had a bunch of men. In this room that have impacted him. It wasn't me. I can promise you that. You don't think this is important? You don't think relationships outside of your own family are important? Look at this picture. This is what it's about. It's not about fatherhood. It's about the father sending his son to die on our behalf. And it's the most important thing that we could share with our own kids and with any kids in this city, in this country, in this world. I'm going to show you a clip from a, a movie, and I'm not promoting the movie, so don't don't take this because it's an Adam Sandler movie. So I'm not promoting this movie, but this movie is a, an older Adam Sandler movie, and it's a movie called Click. And the premise of the movie is that Adam Sandler is a father that gets a remote control that he can control his life with. And uh, he uh, makes some poor decisions with that remote control. And this scene that we're about to watch is uh, he, has, uh, he has basically fast-forwarded through his father's death. 
He's used the fast-forward button to to fast-forward through his father's death. Don't let the idol of busyness keep us from casting vision. Don't let the idol of busyness keep you from communicating truth. Don't let the idol of busyness keep you from championing service. Don't let the idol of busyness keep you from committing to discipleship. And don't let the idol of busyness keep you from being the chief memory maker for this next generation. And there arose a generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. My prayer is that 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 is not said about this next generation. May we as men be obedient to the call that God has on our life to proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. Father, we just thank you for this time. I praise you for the opportunity. Thankful for these men. I pray, Father, that you would move in our hearts in a mighty way. That you would strip away any pride, any selfishness, any sin uh, that is uh, keeping us from you. That you would draw us close to you. That you would move in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit in such a powerful way that we would leave changed men tonight. That we would leave changed, willing to go and live out the gospel each and every day in the spheres of influence that you've called us to. Whether that's the inner city of Memphis, whether it's a business downtown, whether that's a company in East Memphis, a school, a church, wherever you've called us, may we be obedient and may we go passionately and may they see in us a glimpse of you. May our lives be about a response to who you are and what you have done on our behalf. Father, move in us in a powerful way. Give us a clear definition of what it means to to live life as a godly man. Help us each and every day to apply biblical truth and apply it to everyday life. Take biblical truth and apply it to everyday life. That we would have a selfless attitude. That our attitude would be um, that of you. That we would be committed to seek out this next generation and pour our, our lives into them. And that no one would see our lives and equate a gospel-centered life with being boring. That they would see this beautiful mess. And that you would use our beautiful mess for your glory and not our own. Father, change us. Only you can do that. May our lives be only about the gospel. God, we love you and we give this night over to you. And we're thankful for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.